0: Hello, I'm Mark and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. This week I want to revisit stakeholder analysis. So this is, for me, a foundational tool that we all have to use if we want our pathway to impact to work and if we want it to be time efficient. That's why I build this into all of my trainings. If you've been to a training of mine, you'll have tried this out for yourself and you'll have discovered from experience that the way in which this helps you structure your thinking enables you to be way, way more effective. And the reason for this is that a stakeholder analysis enables you to take a step of empathy. Now, systematically, I am putting myself in the shoes of the people who might use or benefit from my research. And I'm understanding what they are interested in. I'm understanding the level of capacity they might have to influence my ability to achieve input uh, impact, either by blocking that or facilitating that. And I have a sense of the direct impact that this might have on them, for good or for ill. Uh, and as a result now, I am able to reach out in a very tailored, specific way to people, that is ethically grounded uh, in terms of uh, what might go wrong. I've thought about that ahead of time, uh, but is also incredibly efficient. So I'm not now just reaching out and saying, here's me, here's my research, uh, be interested. Uh, I'm reaching out to each different group in a subtly different way, uh, and I'm not misrepresenting myself. This is, this is me, these are my interests, this is what we do as a group. But. Based on this analysis, I can see that you've got this particular challenge, and we think that our research might be able to help resolve part of that challenge. Or based on this analysis, we can see that you're uh, trying to achieve a particular goal, uh, a strategic objective, and we think that our research might help you. Uh, And so it is that intersection between my interest and theirs, that one thing that uh, that people are likely to say, yeah, hey, that's interesting, uh, that I now reach out with. And so I may only send two or three emails um, based on uh, the two or three that I think are most relevant for whichever reasons I choose. Uh, but I get responses from all two or three of those individuals representing those organizations. And um, and they're like, yeah, uh, let's meet up, let's talk, because, yeah, if you can help us with that challenge, then of course I want to talk. Great. Um, tell me more. And now you begin on a pathway to impact. And importantly, that's a pathway to impact which you're able now to co-produce with that organization. Uh, so these are our challenges. This is what we're doing in this space at the moment. This is now how you might be able to help. And that's the kind of evidence that we need. And that's the point at which you can help. And now let's work together on this. And uh, if there is the opportunity for them to uh, to co-fund or to help resource this, then you've now got people working with you on your pathway. So hugely important tool. Uh, And what I'm going to do in this episode is to take this to a new level. So my colleagues and I have been working on uh, what we're calling a three eyes framework, which uh, enables us to think about this in three different ways. So this is now interest, influence, and impact. And we're asking each of these as a question. And we're asking each question in two ways. I'm looking for both a positive and a negative form. Uh, And then we're going to a a level of depth uh, in each of these categories uh, that, that goes way deeper than you would ever expect to do. Uh, and uh, because of that death, we're now able to understand uh, the our stakeholders and the nature of their stake and what is driving those interests or why they might try and block us or uh, what it is that will, will benefit them and how. And uh, we'll, we get a much deeper understanding of that. And for me, that knowledge is then power to be able to effect more positive change, to think more deeply about the ethics of what I do and to make sure that this actually does work uh, rather than leading to negative unintended consequences. So this is uh, being done in a collection of research projects uh, with a bunch of colleagues. Uh, This is uh, gonna be a paper that will be led by Helen Kendall, um, one of the postdocs I'm working with on, on one of these projects. Um, I uh, trialed it um, most, uh, first of all, we trialed our third um, criterion, the impact criterion in a project around obesity and health. Uh, And we're now trialing this into other environmental governance projects where we're not just adding that third criterion, we're adding that uh, second layer of depth to all three of these. Uh, And I did the the first of those uh, stakeholder analyses with my colleague Regina Hansda last week and the great thing is it's working. So there will be a peer reviewed paper at some point. Um uh, but uh, but the beauty of a podcast is I get to tell you this work in progress and tell you what works um at present. So of course this may change with the time we get to the peer reviewed paper um and uh, and you can take it with a pinch of salt but uh, but I'm giving you this on on the basis of having tried tried this out and seeing just how deep you can you can go with this which is quite exciting. Um, uh, linked to this, I have written a new guide, so I'll put a link to this in the show notes if you want to try this out for yourself uh, with a link through to the new template, a bunch of other information and a workshop plan, Uh, and I'll finish this um, episode by going through that workshop plan. If you decide that you want to try this out for yourself, then uh, join me on that cutting edge of uh, of stakeholder analysis, and, um, and together with Helen, Regina, uh, and I, and the rest of our colleagues, you then would be welcome to uh, pitch what you've done as uh, an additional case study, and potentially join the paper that we're writing on this. So... Uh, that's what we're doing, that's where we're headed. Um, and um, let's let's dive into the three eyes. So three questions asked in each case in both a positive and a negative form. First of all, interest. So the question is who is interested in your research? and once I've identified who those people are, I want to understand the nature of their interest. So in contrast to the traditional interest influence matrices that, uh, that emerged originally in the business management literature in the 1980s, where you have a two-by-two two matrix and we're just placing them um, in that two-by-two two space in one of four boxes. Four quadrants, which is quite a quantitative approach to this. What I care more about um, uh, is is actually the qualitative data I can collect about the nature of that interest, rather than whether it's necessarily high, medium, or low. Although I, I find those categories useful to help get the the, the juices going in a, in a in a in a discussion. So, who's interested and what's the nature of their interest, um, or um, uh, who is currently disinterested? But these are people that you would like. To be interest based on their influence or impact. So quite often, uh, at the end of analysis uh, of an analysis, I'm going through and uh, I've identified organisations that um, that are int- uh, that are stakeholders because they are hugely influential. They may be a gatekeeper, for example, um, and they may or may not have um, a, a huge amount of impact. They may in fact be a hard to reach group, so they have no influence, no interest, uh, but. They they would be massively impacted positively or negatively. uh, In which case I need to understand why is it that they are not interested? What is driving their disinterest so that I can try and bring this to them and make this accessible to that hard to reach group? So who's interested um, and who is disinterested and why is my first question. The second question then is influence. Who has the power to facilitate or to block the generation of impacts from my research. And at this point, we're thinking indirect. So this could be a gatekeeper gatekeeper organisation. This could be the organisation that will give me access to the people, to the data, uh, to the research permit uh, or whatever it is. Um, It may be that they have some other form of power so they are very rich and powerful and uh, in that sense uh, they might sue me uh, to block me from doing my research. Um, They they might uh, spread misinformation and conspiracy theories. Uh, Listen to last week's uh, episode if you want to find out how to deal more effectively with conspiracy theorists. uh, Or, or they may have the ability to powerfully facilitate my pathway to impact. Actually, uh, they're massively interested in this, and they've got the resources and the manpower to be able to make this stuff happen. So, uh, my uh, my impact is their impact. Their impact is my impact. Now, together, we can achieve way more than we would ever have otherwise been able to achieve. Um, but typically, it, was, it is others who then uh, benefit from it their clients, their stakeholders, their customers, their patients, etc. The third of the three questions is around impact. So, who is likely to benefit most from engaging with your research? So, remember, uh, the way that I de- define impact is all, all around this concept of benefit. But for me, uh, that normative positive has to now trigger us to think about a negative as well. Uh, So whose interests might be compromised or harmed as a result of your work? So interest, influence, impact. Who's interested or disinterested? who has the power or influence to facilitate or block the generation of impacts indirectly from my research, and who might then directly benefit most from engaging with that work or directly have their interests compromised or harmed as a result of that engagement. Now, at this point, we're still on the surface of things. And I think that at this point already, this is hugely powerful. And this is as far as I'm going with my entry level tool that you'll see on on my website. Um, but if you want to go deeper, then I think that there is a deeper level within each of these three categories. Uh, and I want to start asking some of those deeper questions that can uncover deeper, often hidden dynamics that might be driving what you're seeing on the surface of the analysis. If you uh, want to have a look at the, the accompanying blog, you'll see um, a two by two matrix here uh, where you can see each of the three uh, categories here, or uh, questions, interest, influence, impacts, and then uh, a, 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 an upper and a lower level uh, to each of them. So uh, the first two are quite straightforward. Uh, so interest uh, at the top level, where we typically go, considers the stated interests and preferences of those who are interested or disinterested in your research. But then what I try to do is to go deeper, to articulate what are often implicit underlying values, beliefs, and norms that might be underpinning or driving uh, those higher level uh, interests that that I've identified quite quickly and easily, or they might be driving the the disinterests in this. So, so the fact that, uh, that I identify um, uh, uh, with a set of political values, uh, I'm right or I'm left, uh, for example, might be what is driving the fact that I'm interested in some research that might um, empower the poor or might uh, enable us to create more jobs and uh, improve the local economy, for example. Uh, at a very simple level but but actually now understanding why it is that actually people from that organization uh, tend to be left or right leaning in their politics or people in this particular uh, public group um, or interest group uh, tend to be one or other side uh, now i can begin to to think yeah so what is going on behind that why are they leaning in that direction uh, what are the drivers of that? And uh, now I'm going in much better armed to be able to deal with a the, the, the whole set of issues that they might raise um, uh, around their engagement with this research or that that might raise for me in terms of where this takes me, uh, which may or may not be a comfortable in terms of my own personal politics, perhaps, for example. Second, let's go to this deeper level of uh, of influence. So typically when I ask people to... Uh, tell me about the the power that an organization might have to facilitate or to block uh, my ability to achieve impact. Uh, What I get are explicit forms of typically hierarchical power over forms of influence. So uh, they're rich, uh, they're powerful, they've got uh, fancy lawyers behind them, Uh, they are the organization that controls all of the resource, that is the gatekeeper for example. Um, uh, they have more members than any other organization of their type in the world or whatever it is um, that kind of power by numbers, um, by wealth, by uh, by hierarchy um, uh, it, it's the minister, um, it's the governing um, party or, or whatever it is Yeah. Um, so uh, typically this kind of uh, of influence is characterized by control instrumentalism, self-interest but we can go much further than that uh, you get the idea what I want to do is to, to then probe a little bit deeper uh, and to understand um, uh, the, the, this other implicit, personal or transpersonal, what I would describe as power with forms of influence, which are more likely to be forms of empowerment. So we're contrasting power over and power with here. Uh, and these power with forms of more implicit personal transpersonal power or empowerment uh, are typically characterized by dialogue inclusion negotiation and sharing of power and so uh, why uh, and in some cases you get organizations that have both <clears throat> so it may be that uh, I've got someone who is uh, is very rich and, and powerful, and as a result is able to uh, employ fancy lawyers. And at the same time, they are also um, uh, very well politically connected, and it is that personal power that enables them very often to pull strings without ever having to resort to that uh, that, that hierarchical, uh, so that that's, uh, that power over type um, uh, influence. Um, Or looking at looking at a a completely different way. Um, Very often, uh, I I work with people who have natural leadership abilities, and you see them before they've ever reached their full potential at the bottom of the traditional hierarchy. Uh, And the example I always give is uh, is my good friend and colleague, uh, Anna Atley. Um, from Project Maya, if you want to look her up. And um, and when I first met her, she was at the bottom of the hierarchy, PhD students, um, but bucket loads of personal, transpersonal power, way, way more powerful um, in terms of actually drawing people to her, influencing people, getting people to naturally want to follow her than the director of that institute at the time, which happened to be me, uh, who nobody respected whatsoever and would just, in fact, out of principle, do the opposite of Um, uh, And so who are those kinds of people? Um, And and it may be that whilst I'm looking at this organization, I'm fine-graining my analysis and realizing that, well, that's the boss, but actually, that person over there who you might not expect, they're the person with all the power. Uh, And when I'm doing this as a workshop, as I'll describe at the end of the podcast episode, um, uh, very often it's that kind of intelligence that I'll get from the stakeholders I bring into the room that is invaluable. So you know what, Uh, if I want to make this work, I don't go straight to the top. I go to that person first and I get them on side uh, and I get them to help me understand the context within that organization. And then together we pitch this to the boss and that's how we make something happen, for example. And then finally, I've got my third uh, criterion, impact. And this is considering those who are likely to directly benefit most or directly be negatively impacted from engaging with the, the research. And the key reason why I've added this third um, criterion to a method that has remained unchanged pretty much since the the 1980s, if you you look at stakeholder analysis and how it is typically practiced in the literature, uh, is because when you're only looking at interest and influence, you are potentially going to further marginalize the marginalized, uh, to, to, to further cut out the voiceless. And... Uh, to uh, uh, f- completely forget the fact that there are some very important but hard-to-reach groups that you want to bring into your research and you want to try and enable to achieve benefit from from that work. Um, And so this is uh, the the kind of the classic situation where uh, a traditional interest influence matrix would say, well, they've got no interest in this, totally disinterested, no power whatsoever, and they're now categorized as the crowd, uh, typically. Uh, And they're the group that you're gonna reach last and potentially cut out altogether because you haven't got time to reach everyone in the crowd. Uh, But actually now where I identify that this disinterested low power group uh, could potentially be the one group he would benefit most if we could empower them and or make them interested enough to engage and to get those benefits, then yeah, actually, morally speaking, this is a really important group that is systematically getting cut out of stakeholder analysis. So um, asking, using the concept of benefit to define impact, the impact criterion asks why and how stakeholders might benefit or be negatively impacted by engagement with the project or its research. And like the other two criteria, it can operate on these two levels. So at the top level, um, let's think about it simply. I'm just using this to identify immediate impacts from engagement. Whether these are benefits, such as the formation of new networks, capacity, knowledge, or skills, things that can happen quite quickly, um, uh, quite close to your research. Or whether these are negative impacts, such as causing offence, misunderstanding, uh, disengagement, for example. Again, quite, uh, uh, quite immediate um, negative impacts that can occur from uh, your engagement. But secondly, let's just go a bit deeper than this and ask ourselves uh, now how we might be able to use this impact criterion to consider the longer term, perhaps more putative benefits or negative impacts that might arise from um, the, the achievement of those initial benefits. And uh, what I'm encouraging you to do here is to think deeper about what potentially might happen longer term. Uh, Yet, yeah, we're gonna get these short term benefits, but let's just have a think about some of the assumptions I'm making, some of the risks that I might not have fully uh, thought through here, and some of the quite cool things that might happen if I were to think about this a little bit more explicitly right at the outset and bring this into the conversation. Uh, And then let's, let's see where this goes. So this may include more instrumental benefits such as new policies or economic, social, environmental, health or cultural benefits arising from the engagement of those stakeholders. Uh, And if you've noticed, I'm using uh, the typology that I published in uh, the Research Impact Handbook, which I've discussed in the first episode of um, this season earlier this year. Uh, And I would argue that the the inclusion of this is consistent with the classic definition of stakeholders from Freeman in 1984, uh, which is uh, those who are both affected by or who can affect change. Because what I'm doing now is I'm making explicit the potential for positive benefits or harm to arise from their interests and influence or lack thereof. Uh, It's also important to emphasise the need to regularly revisit the analysis to capture new stakeholders as they become relevant to the research and to ensure that engagement with research remains targeted to the dynamic needs of what are inevitably changing interests out there in our stakeholders and in our publics. Uh, so Brexit happens, uh, all of a sudden I've got a whole load of new issues that I'm dealing with um, and how can I make sure this is now relevant in a post-Brexit world, for example. We have to keep just being aware of the kind of uh, events and circumstances that, uh, that might really change uh, who is interested and why perhaps, perhaps the same people are now interested for different reasons, have different levels of influence uh, and may be impacted in new, uh, new ways. In my uh, blog, uh, now you can have a look uh, if you want and see um, what this then uh, comes up with. We've got a, a typology of different stakeholders based on this. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different types. So I've got disinterested stakeholders. I've got those who are disinterested and impacted, whether positive or negatively. Uh, I've got those who are disinterested and um, uh, so no this is uh, disinterested and negatively impacted i 've got disinterested influencers uh, i 've got disinterested influential and negatively impacted i 've got those who are only interested i 've got those who are interested and impacted i 've got those who are interested influencers and i 've got those who are interested influential and uh, and negatively impacted um, no, you know what? I got that slightly wrong. Impacted is positive or negative? I got that right the first time around. You know what? What you need to do is go and have a look at the blog, and you can see this table. Uh, it's, um, it, it gives you a sense now of of how this works, but it's a very fine grained uh, typology, and as you can hear, work in progress because I'm getting my own typology wrong here. Um, but uh, but try it out um, and see how it works. So to do this, you need to head along to the blog where uh, I've got a link in the show notes. Uh, download the PDF. Uh, To be honest, it's a bit of a big table, Uh, so what I recommend is um, print this out, um, copy and paste the headings, maybe into a Word file, uh, blow them up now onto one heading per sheet of A4 paper, so you can have this big, uh, and you're going to now want to transpose this onto flip chart paper, so what we're doing... You'll see an image at the top of the blog of, of what this might look like in practice. Is we've got a table, but we've now blown this up onto an entire wall using flip chart paper. I've coated the columns with my flip chart pens, and at the heading of each column, I've now printed out uh, each of these uh, of these different um, <clears throat> these different headings. And I'm just going to work through each of the um, the headings that we've got here. Now, where are we? So uh, I to actually find this. <clears throat> Here we go. Um, so the first column is the, the name of the organization, the group, or the individual that we're, we're analyzing. Uh, and then I've got uh, four things I'm going to ask you in terms of interest. The first is the scope of their interest. So normally I think about this geographically, is this a local stakeholder, national or international, but there are many other ways in which you might want to do this uh, in terms of diversity or social groups or or things like that. Uh, But the reason I'm doing this is that quite often you don't realize that we've got our, our blinkers on and we're here sitting in this town, that's our focus. Uh, But actually, there are a whole lot of people who maybe don't live here, but have very big interest in what happens here. And they have a more national or perhaps an international focus. And actually, they've got a huge amount of power over what actually can happen here. So we need to bring them in. So just uh, making people aware of that right at the beginning. Uh, First, uh, next then, uh, we've got the nature of their interest. So this is the interest category, and it's the top level, um, the, the, the more surface level. So my question is, what aspects of the research are they likely to be interested in, or why are they likely to not be interested? And we describe. Then we go to the second, deeper level, which is the nature of the interest in terms of values. So what values and beliefs or assumptions might drive or inhibit this interest or disinterest? And then finally, the level of interest. Based on all of that, let's categorize this as high, medium, or low. And it's not just a kind of a finger in the air thing. Now, I've got a sense now of, uh, yeah, what underpins that categorization as high, medium, or low. And now I can use this much later to really quickly run through all of the rows that I've got uh, to identify who might be the hard to reach groups where I've got low on interest, low on influence, high on impact, for example, uh, and pull them out uh, to prioritize first, for example. Next, let's move to influence, which is now uh, our indirect mode of, of impact. And uh, I've got, uh, again, four questions here. Uh, so the first two are on the nature of the influence. So um, this is the, the, my ability, or the, the ability of this organization to facilitate or block the generation of, uh, of benefits from the research. So can this organization block impact? If so, why and how? Now let's have a think about uh, the nature of that uh, that power at a deeper uh, level. So let's have a think about the um, first of all the the explicit hierarchical power over, or then let's look at the implicit personal or transpersonal power with. So we understand that they can block or facilitate, and these are the ways in which. But now I'm asking you much deeper, tell me, what's the nature of this? Is it explicit, implicit? Power over, power with. Maybe it's a bit of both, but we're doing that deeper thinking now. Uh, And then I want to understand something about the reach of that influence. So it may be that I've got uh, an organization that has the ability to influence one person. But if that one person happens to be the president of the country, then well, that's that's fairly far-reaching, and I need to know that. It may be that uh, that yeah, it may be a fairly low level, but actually, this is now the largest membership organisation in Europe, um, and what they can do even at a low level is worth knowing about because of that uh, of that reach. Um, so whether it's a geographical scale, a social scale, or some other scale, tell me about that. And now, um, based on these two different ways of thinking about the nature of the influence and its depth and the reach of that influence, I might categorise the level of that high, medium or low. And then finally, uh, impact. And this is the direct uh, impact of your research or of their engagement with your research on them now, positive or negative. Uh, So first of all, I want to understand the nature of that impact. So um, uh, is the research likely to generate direct benefit or negative impacts for this organisation? What are those benefits? What what might be those uh, negative impacts? Uh, And I want to know something about the timing of this now. Uh, Is this something that's going to happen in the short term or over the long term? And I want to know something about the level of that impact. How significant is this likely to be for that, uh, that organization? Uh, again, high, medium, or low, based on what I've done before. Um, and you'll notice that uh, that this is now uh, marrying up with what I uh, I talk about Uh, in relation to impact all the time. uh, These two criteria you might use to evaluate uh, whether your impact is is worthwhile. I want to know, is it significant? Uh, Does it resonate? Does anyone anyone care about it? Does it really matter? Uh, uh, And how far-reaching might this be, uh, whether it's geographical, social, some other scale? So significance and reach are built into this, uh, which means that I can then prioritize accordingly if I wish. I then added one final column, which is just other context. Um, So from experience doing this, uh, every now and then there's just something else that's really important, really useful, that I need to know about this uh, organization. So they are in conflict with that other organization, and they have been for decades, and you cannot put them both in the same room, or sparks will fly. Um, uh, or this organization is suing that organization um, and you're going to have to take legal advice before you go and talk to them perhaps. Uh, those kinds of little bits of information um, might be like gold dust in fact and let's just make sure that we've given people the chance to, to tell us all of those things. So uh, that is what it, uh, what it looks like. Uh, I've fine-grained this for you now. You're getting a a much deeper sense of the kind of questions you can ask. Uh, And I hope you're already getting a sense now of just how useful and how deeply useful this is now, going into an organisation, knowing that kind of stuff uh, about them. So finally, let's just conclude with my workshop plan. So very briefly, um, I think it's really important to note that uh, this is a social science research method, So uh, I believe it is important that you get ethics approval for this um, through your ethics committee in your university, that you make sure that you get informed consent from the stakeholders you invite to take part in this analysis with you. Um, uh, now I know some people would say well it's just part of my pathway to impact and most people don't go through uh, these those kind of uh, things but for me uh, this is a controversial technique as I'll explain in a moment uh, and I think you want to protect yourself and the people there by making sure you've gone through all of these 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 mechanisms so get ethics approval get a consent form make sure you're discussing with the the group uh, exactly what the issues around this might be Um, And the key issue now is that we make people aware that we're going to talk confidentially about our personal opinions and and perspectives on the relative interest, influence and impact uh, of uh, each of these different organisations uh, and in some cases of individuals within uh, and named individuals within those organisations and some of your opinions may or may not be very flattering and as a result if this now gets into the public domain and into the hands of the person that we're saying has no power whatsoever despite the fact that they're the head of their organisation um, they may not be happy about this um, uh, and this is not something that I would ever want to be uh, kind of published uh, in case of libel or, or whatever else this is uh, an internal thing that we're using to discuss our own opinions just to share knowledge to empower us to now be able to deal more effectively uh, with these organizations to benefit them uh, so, uh, so let's make this, this very clear to people uh, now I tend to invite anywhere between three and five stakeholders to something like this I've done it with a couple it can still work Uh, And worst case scenario, you've just got one person uh, if they have the knowledge of all of the organizations and interest groups in that in that area. That's that's still better than you doing this by yourself. But ideally, you've got at least three people in the room, which means you can start to triangulate this. And I disagree with you. And I think actually, for these reasons, you might think about this a bit differently. And you get that discussion going, you get much richer, richer, richer data. You can do this with much more people. Um, uh, You can do it with 10. I quite regularly do that. Uh, And for political reasons, you might want to do that. You might want to have your entire research team involved, as we did um, uh, with with Helen Kendall and colleagues and colleagues. in in our obesity project. Uh, what I would recommend you don't do, however, is to invite all of your stakeholders to it. So I had a, a nightmare scenario once where I was doing a stakeholder analysis for government many years ago, uh, and I had a very a very good civil servant. Um, uh, and so it got out that we were doing a stakeholder analysis. Um, and one by one, various stakeholder organisations in this highly conflicted space contacted the, the government to say, we've heard you are doing a stakeholder analysis, can we get involved? And one by one, the civil servants said, said, said oh okay yeah Um, and now they're involved they tell their friends and hey why are we not invited we want to be involved and by the end of this I had no idea I'd asked them to invite two or three up to five maximum stakeholders uh, and I came and there were 30 people in the room Uh, in fact all the stakeholders that we were meant to be analyzing including a whole load of people that were very high power low power um, uh, I mean yeah and now a very awkward conversation uh, together rating the relative <laughs> Interested and influence, and uh, which was all doing at that stage of uh, of everyone in the room. Yeah, it, it wasn't a comfortable workshop. Uh, let me tell you. Um, so uh, we've uh, we've we've got a few people, relevant people in the room um, We've gone through ethics uh, We've got a consent form So first part of my workshop is I'm doing introductions to everyone um, uh, Explaining uh, what uh, the ethics procedure we're under And the fact that they need to uh, look at these consent forms I work through them I make sure that they understand them This is informed consent after all And I emphasise why it's so important this is confidential So we're not taking photographs And uh, it's Chatham House rules Uh, Etc., etc. Second point is now I introduce the analysis. So I explain what stakeholder analysis is, my three questions, pretty easy to get your head around. And we have a bit of a discussion about the scope of the analysis. Um, So, uh, are we going to draw a very clear line? If you're not in this community, you're out, Uh, or it's going to be a UK geographical one, or some other kind of social group where we're working with LGBT plus groups only, and therefore if you're not in that category, we're not going to consider you, for example, who knows. Uh, and then uh, I explain each of the headings. I'm now uh, standing up and, and pointing through. And actually, the way that I do this is I do it with a work example. So let's choose an organization we all know something about. And now let's go through each of those columns in the same way that I've just done with you, uh, but with a, a worked example. Once I've done that, um, and uh, you're going to need at least 20 minutes to do that first example, um, depending on how much conversation there is, how controversial that organization is, perhaps half an hour, and now you're moving into the stakeholder analysis properly. So right, uh, you know how to do this. I want you all now to work individually. Take a pad of post-it notes, uh, and now just identify a stakeholder organization, or a group, or an individual. Uh, put them in column A, and start working across. Uh, I'm keeping an eye on what's going on in case there are two people working on the same organization, in which case I try and get them to merge so we don't get duplicates. Um, And we spend at least an hour, uh, if you can encourage people with a break in the middle to do this for two hours, um, then that's quite useful. Um, People always say, but there's too many, I can't do this all. Uh, And I just say, look, go with the the organisations that come to mind first, that for whatever reason you think are probably most important. And that means then uh, that we will draw a line after one hour or two hours, however long you can persuade people to work for. Uh, And we've got um, hopefully the most important ones. And then after the event, I'm sending this around and saying, right, now fill in the gaps with the other organizations in your own time. Um, But we've got a a big enough and diverse enough group that we can take this to the next step. The next step then is uh, to do some checking. So I get everyone to participate uh, sorry, to check the, the the work done by the other participants. So uh, adding comments or post-it notes where, no, I would see this quite differently. I think actually they're massively powerful for these reasons, or you just need to speak to that person. That's how you make things happen or whatever it is. Uh, and we don't have to have the same opinions here. Yeah? So it, divergence is good. Uh, the fact that there are two different ways of looking at this organization, two different groups within that organization, two different perspectives, that's, that's useful. I want to know that. Uh, and then I facilitate a discussion finally uh, around any key points that the group think we need to discuss. And I tend to focus on areas where there is disagreement or confusion to try and resolve these through group discussion, uh, Accepting that the resolution might be there are just two different views, and that's fine. Um, but uh, we have that discussion as a, as a whole group at the end. There's one final step, uh, and this is now uh, something that is not uh, my own technique. This is called stakeholder-derived stakeholder classification, if you uh, look that up in Google Scholar. Um, And uh, the the way that this is done in the literature, you basically get all of your your stakeholders, and you put them on cards, and you shuffle the cards, and now you get people to put the stakeholders into um, different piles. Uh, now, in reality, that doesn't work in a, in a workshop, um, workshop setting. So my ad- adaptation of this is that I get the group to split into at least two subgroups. Uh, so I've got now, um, uh, ideally, uh, I've got now my, my minimum three people, so I've got two pairs working on this. But if I've got a dozen people, I might have um, three groups of four working on this at the same time in parallel. And I want each group to come up, if you can, with uh, at least two different ways in which I might be able to categorize all of these different uh, stakeholders that we've identified so far. Now, in reality, they may only come up with one, but at least you've now got two to choose between because you've got at least two subgroups. Um, and the point I'm trying to make with this is to get people to realize there is not just one way I can slice this pie. Uh, the, there are lots of different ways in which I could do this. So I could say that we've got two categories, for and against this kind of new technology we're developing in our research, for example. Uh, or I might have for and against. And then within my for and against, I've got public sector, private sector. Um, I, I might have this uh, based on some other functional classification. Um, so I've got uh, farmers, and then within farmers, I've got dairy farmers, arable farmers, hill farmers, for example. Um, there's, there's any number of different ways of doing this. And, and, uh, and at the end, um, I want each group to say, well, I've got my classification. Let's check if it works. Go back to the tables and ask yourself, just randomly pick organizations and ask yourself, can this fit into one of my categories? And if you get a organization or group or individual that does not fit into any one of your categories, you've got a missing category. Uh, Your categorization doesn't quite work. What is that missing category? Can we add that in? Great. And then finally, I bring my groups together and each group presents its um, uh, its preferred categorization, but also presents, well, here's what we thought about first and this is why we rejected that. And this is what we think is perhaps the best way of doing this. Uh, and in my experience, very often, you actually get um, uh, quite a lot of convergence at that point. Um, and where you don't, then quite often, you get that ability to layer. So we're gonna have four and against, and then within four and against, we're gonna have Um, public versus private sector because actually we can be public sector for public sector against we can be private sector for public uh, private sector against Uh, great Um, uh, and whether it's by that process of uh, of convergence and no this actually makes most sense Uh, this is most functional this is most useful or some kind of compromise where we're combining those categorizations you reach something now that everyone is happy with. And this classification step for me is really useful because now I've got my five core types or six key uh, categories of, of stakeholders. Um, and now, uh, when I'm having a workshop, I'm going to make sure I've got at least one organization representing each of those different, organi- uh, those different categories. Uh, or I'm going to do some interviews now, um, and I'm going to make sure I've got at least two interviews per uh, type. And uh, now I've got a replicable method that I can use that I can now use to tell people why it is that uh, that organisation was invited and not them, because we couldn't invite everyone and we've made sure we've at least got one organisation representing uh, farmers, for example, and we went for the National Farmers Union. And yes, it would be really useful if I could have had uh, the room around the table to invite the the dairy rep and the arable rep, Um, but we didn't, we've got NFU, so please uh, bear with us here um, and we'll engage you in some other way in the project but that's why uh, we've done this. The the final stage of my my workshop isn't any workshop is an action planning step, so what happens next, who's going to do what, Uh, we're going to write this up and we're going to ask you to then fill in some of the gaps, we're going to get this to you by this date. Um, And I'm emphasizing, again, this is anonymous. Um, And whatever we put into the public domain will be, here are the stakeholder categories or types. Here perhaps are some examples of organizations within each type. And examples of some of the kind of things we've written um, in, each, in answer to these questions, but not linking them to specific organizations so that nobody gets offended. Uh, but you still get a flavor, a sense of actually what's going on uh, within each of these different categories of, of stakeholders. So it's going to remain anonymized in terms of anything we publish. And in the meantime, we need to be super careful about what we're doing with our emails and electronic versions of this that are flying around and whose hands they get into uh, so that this, this works for us. Um, at the end of the, the, the guide, you'll see an equipment equipment list as well. And i put in some further reading, uh, one, two, three, uh, about seven or eight different papers that I've written with my team, my colleagues and I, on stakeholder analysis that uh, is the theory behind this new technique that explains this more deeply. So... Stakeholder analysis, the three eyes framework. This is not for the faint hearted. This is when you really need to understand your stakeholders, your publics to a depth that you're unable to get in any other way. Use this technique, and I promise you, you will understand the people who are coming into your workshops, the people that you're now engaging with uh, out there to a much deeper level than ever before. And for me, the depth of that knowledge is what is the power you now have to be able to engage intelligently, to engage empathically, uh, so that you now do research with people, not just for, certainly not on people, uh, that that genuinely resonates, that meets need, that uh, brings people with us and enables us to co-produce our pathways to impact.